new year, a new decade, and a new home of motorsport coverage. Welcome once more to the Race MotoGP podcast. In this episode, we are going to take a step back to 2003, the winter of 2003 to be precise, and then into the spring of 2004, because that was the last time when Valentino Rossi rode a Honda, and it was the first time Valentino Rossi rode a Yamaha. Toby Moody here to take you through the 2004 season, where I was lucky enough to attend every single race. Joining me is Neil Spaulding, MotoGP technical guru, who had an insight very few others had into all of the garages up and down the MotoGP pit lane that year. Neil, hello, sir. Hello. Yes, uh, great to be here. Quite interesting sitting, looking back at that period of time. It was really quite, you know, an impressive, impressive year. It really was. And of course, we were going to see history unfold in 2004. Not that we had had enough history in 2002, 2003. Just to take people back, 2002 was the very first year of the four-stroke MotoGP era. We had gone from 500cc two-stroke motorcycles into essentially double the capacity with four-stroke 990cc. Honda had turned up with their I still think one of the best motorcycles ever to grace the planet, the uh, the, the RCV uh, 211V, should I say, a V5 990. Valentino Rossi jumped on it. I mean, he wiped the board. He did. I mean, I, I still maintain that motorcycle uh, had everything. I mean, with what we know now, I mean, we're 15 years, 16 years later, and you look back at that RC211 and everything that, everybody else has fought to develop and everything else they had it it was in the metal they, they had absolutely understood everything they needed to do and everybody else has spent years catching up with that motorcycle absolutely superb coming out of the 2003 season let us remind ourselves that honda essentially had done a mclaren in formula one back in 1988 they had won every single race but one don't forget Honda had won every single race full stop in 1997, but that's another era. So let's just park that for a minute. But coming out of 2003, Honda had got 395 points in the Constructors' Championship out of a possible 400. And that's only because Valentino made a bit of a mistake in Barcelona and the Ducati won in the heat of Barcelona that day. They nearly won it. He nearly won every race. Yeah, and, and, I mean, Yamaha had had an absolute complete nightmare. They had, I mean, they last won a championship with Wayne Rainey on a 500 two-stroke. I mean, their, their 500 program was still competitive. I mean, they, they'd run this contra-rotating crankshaft two-stroke. So the, the, the Honda had a single crankshaft turning backwards, and the Yamaha was two twins as a, as a V. And they had had a crankshaft for each pair of cylinders and they tried the honda's design and i don't know whether they didn't like it or whether they wanted to do it their way but they knew they were never going to make enough power of that engine so they had spent the last 10 years fettling their chassis getting the thing to handle absolutely perfectly right up to the last year they were still having six half a dozen new chassis a year 
just trying to get that last bit to take on the Honda. They won races, but they were never anywhere near in the championship. No, not at all. Uh, in in 2003, as I say, Honda won every race but one, and the one that they didn't win was a Ducati, so you have to go back to 2002, where they won two Grand Prix with Max Biaggi. He won in Brno. He was always good at Brno. Yamahas were always good at Brno, and he won in Malaysia as well. But that was 2002. It was, and that was the first year of the of the, of the MotoGP Yamaha, and, and it was a bike designed by the 500 guys. So they'd sat down, and at the end of their 10 years of fettling their 500, and the same bunch of people, I mean, they, they, they got in one new guy, um, the bloke who designed their motocrosser single, and he designed the engine. So they had this engine. It was specifically designed to make power in the way they'd always wanted their 500 to make power. So it didn't require massive electronics. It used carburetors. I mean, even their street bikes were on fuel injection, going on to fuel injection by then. But they'd use carburetors. And it was deliberately designed with a torque curve so that if the rear wheel started to spin the torque was going down. So it was all mid-range punch quite low down, but high up, it was designed to be easy to ride and to use the tyres they've been used to. We went to the very first MotoGP race at Suzuka in 02, and the talk of the paddock then, particularly with Yamaha, was all about, we've got too much power, we've got too much power. You know, Carlos Checker and Max Biaggi were all, oh, you know, we've got too much power. The tar's going to shred. That was the big talk of the town in MotoGP at the beginning of that era, that that it would be too much. Exactly. Have you ever heard a racer say they've got too much power? Yeah, but, but that's what they were saying. And Yamaha had designed a bike to make de almost deliberately less power than the Honda, thinking that that would give them tire life. I mean, the bike wasn't even the full 990ccs. It was something like 900 and. 45 cc, 942 oh, cc. Right. That's right. Yes. You know, it was it was very carefully slotted in by a bunch of guys used to getting the best out of a 500 to be like the 500 they'd always dreamed of. So, bringing us back to the end of 03, Valentino had done his two years on the Honda V5. He'd fallen out of favor with Honda. He'd gone to the press conference in Valencia and said that's it, I'm going to Yamaha. Few people such as us at the back of the room draw breath, drew breath and thought, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, remember that the sporting world and history had already been written by Michael Schumacher. He'd gone to Ferrari and was in his pomp at that particular moment with red with, with winning five championships with ferrari so valentina thought well maybe i can do it as well so he won the last race at valencia on the honda there's a picture of him with a backpack on in the pit lane just sort of and one photographer got it just one photographer got it and that was valentino's message of okay thank you i'm now going on my travels yeah, I mean, it was it was the most amazing press conference. And we, we kind of all knew it was coming. I mean, the rumors that had been around since before Motegi, but as I understand it, the deal was done in Motegi, um, that something was up and he was going to move to Yamaha. But that's different to actually seeing the man sitting at a press conference with, with, with Honda's uh, PR coordinator, politely and very calmly saying, thank you very much. I mean, it was it was almost, you know, thank you for all the fish sort of thing. And off he went. <laughs> 
So when was the first time he rode the Yamaha? Was it in 03 or wasn't there a hoo-ha about contracts, I remember? There was a hoo-ha. Well, there wasn't a hoo-ha. Honda just politely recognised that Valentino was very, very important and said, no, our contract runs to the end of December. He can ride the bike in the new year. And don't forget, after that press conference, I mean, it was one thing for Rossi to pull out, but in the evening it suddenly came out that Burgess and Rossi's entire crew were going with him. Now, I don't know which bit Honda expected, which bit Honda didn't expect, but suddenly it was not just the rider going, but there was an awful lot of technical expertise walking across the paddock as well. And my experience from within a MotoGP team is they will have told them that night. Why would they have told them at Mategi? Because Honda would have clammed up on them because they were still winning for Honda and they did win every race um not quite Mategi but um Malaysia Australia and Valencia at the end of the V5 era and and Valentino has actually said I mean in in his book he's he's talking about the pressure that was on to decide what to do and once they had signed in Mategi he felt free he was released he could just go out and enjoy himself and that's how those last three races became so easy to do for him you know, no pressure on him. Just go out and ride the motorcycle and enjoy yourself. It was a winter going from 03 into 04 uh, of, of the early testing ban, if I can call it that. Restricted mileage put on testing for MotoGP teams. So that was, that was falling the wrong way for him. He rode it then first in Malaysia. Black and white bike, wasn't it? The whole Gulwars thing hadn't been announced or, or, or whatever, but it was a black and white thing. And it's only after the event, like many things, that you then see how much they had to go through. Where did they start with a bike that hadn't won a Grand Prix for 18 months? Well, well, it, it actually, I mean, if you're really cruel, you look back to Biaggi's two wins in 2002, and both of those uh, involved Rossi getting it wrong. You know, at Bruno, uh, he melted his tyre. Uh, the tyre went off. Um, and in Sepang, there were three Hondas all knocking lumps off each other, and Biaggi managed to get away. So not only, I mean, you could say 18 months, but never, other than when Honda dropped the ball, would be actually be a, a rather cruel but accurate interpretation of where they were. Yamaha clearly decided, the board had clearly decided at the end of 2002, that something had gone wrong, that, that, that their great enemies, Honda, had stolen a march. And sometime early in 2003, they told a chap called Furusawa, Masao Furusawa, that he was going to put together a new racing research and development department and that they were going to take over the operations and do something. And the plan was to win the MotoGP championship in 2005, not 2004, 2005, because that was Yamaha's 50th anniversary. You know, the company was formed in 1955. It would be an elegant and nice thing to do. Now, Furusawa, um, he had not actually been in the racing world before. Uh, he'd done all sorts of things, and he was Yamaha's Mr. Fix-It. Every time they had a problem, somebody like Furusawa would be parachuted in and told to sort it out. And, I mean, a bit like what's happened in the last year, Yamaha had sort of dug themselves into a problem. They've managed to stretch the, the best they could out of the previous generation of engineers and their, and their thoughts. And it was clear 
a major change was necessary. So again, just like the last year, the budget was rolled out. Furusawa wasn't restricted by um, A, the thought processes of the 500 guys, but he also wasn't restricted by their budget. You know, it was it was a whole new ball game. It was told, go out and spend the money. We want to start winning races. And he was free to bring in other people. So, I mean, you know, Yamaha got very close relationships with Toyota. He clearly went and chatted with them. You know, how's the world going around? What's good? What's not good? He went across to the engine department um, and found a, a chat called Suji. And Suji-san had worked for nine nine years. I think he'd spent seven years living on and off in rugby. Um, I learned an elegant turn of phrase as a result. Um, I can say that because I was born in rugby. Um, but he had been Yamaha's man in the Formula One engine world. And Yamaha's Formula One engines were actually built in rugby by Judd. And that all of their initial engines were five-valve per cylinder as Yamaha had been doing on the street. I mean, their first really high-performance four-strokes, going back to the FZ750, were five valves per cylinder. But the last year or so, they went to four valves. And there's a story there, because five valve is brilliant if your restriction is the valves are too heavy and you can't control them. And what you end up with is, instead of two big inlet valves and two slightly smaller exhaust valves, you probably have five equal-sized valves but on the inlet side, you've got three of them. And the idea is that the valve area um, is, is high. You can get a lot of air in. The trouble is you've got three valves all close together. And valves don't breathe through the end of the valve. They breathe through the sort of cylinder that's opened up by the head diving down. And what five valve does, it theoretically is great for valve area, but for valve... Um, let's consider them packaging you the, 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 they can't breathe because each one is very close to the cylinder wall so that part of the valve doesn't breathe very well because there's a cylinder wall in the way next to each other there's another valve next door so they don't breathe very well if you actually back off a bit on the valve area and just have two inlet valves suddenly an awful lot more air can come round the side of the head of the valve so Yamaha had sort of been building these five valves, very good for mid-range torque, very good for long valve adjustment life, but neither of those matter for racing. Where you've got to rev it all the time. We've got to rev it. I mean, there's one other disadvantage as well. This, this five-valve package gives you a, um, a combustion chamber. Uh, Kevin Cameron, uh, the American technical journalist, has a wonderful expression. He says it gives you a combustion chamber a bit like a fried egg which isn't how you want a combustion chamber to be. You want it really thin with the, with the, uh, the, 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 the section that's going to burn in the center in a very carefully designed shape. The five valve was never going to get as good a shape as a four valve does. So what Yamaha did was find a way to bring four valves in, and that is what Suji-san brought with him from the Formula One program. He brought something else as well, but let's have a bit more chat about the, the, the game they were playing first. So they rode it at um, they rode it at Malaysia in Sepang uh, pre-season tests. Um, they they they've got some valves up their sleeves, literally. Do you see what I did there? Um, up their valve stems and valve guides and. You know, they've got a new crew, they've got Furusawa, they've got Suji-san, they've got a load of budget. 
Let us not forget Lynn Jarvis, the the team principal for Yamaha Motor Racing. He had been there at the, 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 the for Yamaha at Yamaha forever. He had been in charge of Yamaha through their 500 program in latter years, Biaggi, Checker, etc. He had managed to sign Valentino Rossi. So you know that it was a it was an absolute new world. It was Captain Cook. It, a total new world. Um, where did they start with the straight-talking Burgess? Well, Jer- Jeremy has always said his job is to get the best out of what people bring. Now, what Furusawa had brought, he'd had Suji-san re-changing the cylinder head. Uh, Suji-san had also uh, recommended they do this cross-plane crankshaft. It's now quite common. Uh, most twins have got a 90-degree crank in them. All the Yamaha 4s use four cylinders set with, with the with the big ends, 90 degrees uh, offset. And what it gives you is an irregular firing order, but because of the way the pistons move and the conrods move, it gives you an unbelievably smooth crankshaft rotation. V4s have that naturally because they... When, when two when on a V4, when two cylinders are at top dead center, the other two are halfway down their stroke, and vice versa. When the two that were at top dead center come down, the other two go top. Now, when a piston gets to the top of its stroke, it physically stops, and the crankshaft that's pushing it theoretically speeds up because it hasn't got any effort pushing the piston up. Same at the bottom. When the piston stops at the bottom, the crankshaft speeds up, and then halfway up the stroke, it slows down. If you've got a conventional inline four, the crankshaft sounds smooth because the combustions are evenly spaced, but actually it's speeding up and slowing down and creating a vibration. If you have 90 degree throws, it sounds irregular, but conversely, the crankshaft is very, very smooth. And that smoothness goes all the way through to the rear tire and helps you get grip. And it helps the rider use and manage that grip. So they've got this engine completely different. They actually had four engines at that first test. Uh, five-valve conventional crank, five-valve irregular crank, and four-valve conventional crank, four-valve irregular crank. And Rossi chose, as Furusawa put it, the right one, which was the irregular firing four-valve engine. Let us not forget to go back to basics here. It's a straight four. It's a straight four, brilliant for packaging, just like Yamaha street bikes. But now it's been bodged, and I'm afraid it has to be put like that, to work and take the best advantages of a v4 as well while minimizing the disadvantages it's not bodging it's prototype racing win the race true i mean the one thing it had from day one this crankshaft had always rotated backwards uh, and that was purely um so that they could take the power from the center of the crankshaft which in a high performance engine limits the amount of twist that happens in the crankshaft um but then you get the drive to the conventional clutch via an extra shaft, a jack shaft. And because you've put an extra shaft in, you have to turn the crankshaft backwards. At the time, they did it because that's what you had to do to get the power takeoff. What has transpired is that that changes the gyroscopic effects on the bike. And actually, it corners and turns differently. I mean, gyroscopics on a motorcycle are really important. And they affect... It's why they stay upright, for crying out loud. It's, yes, absolutely. Well, they stay upright because you're sitting on top of it, steering it, keeping it balanced. But it is helping you because you've got two filthy great wheels rotating, not wanting to turn. 
So when you get a restriction on turning, it's because the wheel doesn't want to change direction. When you add the crankshaft to that, it really doesn't want to change direction because it's revving much higher. And in a MotoGP bike, these crankshafts are 9 or 10 kilos. They're massive. Just and even in 04, they were doing about 16,000 revs. Absolutely. You know, that was a significant other in terms of not wanting to turn. So there's Yamaha with this reverse rotating crank. And suddenly, when you come into a, you know, Donington's the perfect example for this. You've got three hairpins, or the three stop-dead corners, crankshaft rotation through the roof because you're coming in, changing down, wheel speed right down. But the Yamaha turns like crazy in that situation because there's no stability coming from the combined gyroscopics, the crankshafts actually making things less stable, which is what you want. Then you head out onto the circuit and all the other bikes with their forward rotating crankshafts, they've had to fight their way through the hairpin. They then go down to go down craner curves and they've got both wheels and the crankshaft all going really high revs and they absolutely don't want to turn. It doesn't want to turn, yes. It, you know, What did Bayliss do? I know it's a different kettle of fish with the Ducati, but he'd get through a set of boots uh, a weekend just because he'd put a hole from the end of the foot peg through underneath where the ball of his foot was. He, he, he showed me one day the boots in, so two hours on Friday, two hours on Saturday, um, hour and a bit on, not even an hour on Sunday. So that's uh, five hours of riding, boots knackered. I mean, I, I, I mean, the Kawasaki's had inline fours as well, and they had what's called Big Bang. They had two pistons firing together. Uh, that, by, 2000 and, and by, by this engine turning up in 2004, they'd actually hired Yoda-san, the ex-Yamaha race boss, and he was going through with them all the experiments they needed to understand, and one of them was to fire the thing like a twin. So you had a four-cylinder engine firing like a big twin. I mean, they were destroying a gearbox every practice session. Yeah, the spike, the, the spike of, of torque hammering into this gearbox was just messing it right up. But at Donington, you could look at the riders when they came in and they looked like they stepped out of the shower because their crankshaft turned forwards. It would not turn going down Craner Curves. And that was, you know, they were putting so much effort in. The T-shirts were absolutely soaked. It was so obvious the amount of effort they were putting in. So Valentino had chosen the right engine. He'd chosen the right engine at Malaysia. He had, but the, but the story, we have to go back again. This 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 uh, had taken a while to put together. I mean, Furusawa has been in place since February 2003. I mean, we interviewed um, at the Urta test, Gary Pinch and I interviewed Yoda-san, who was then head of Yamaha Racing. Dead confident, knew the way the world was going. That was before their top rider, Barros, had a crash, and their whole year just dissolved in front of them. But we probably interviewed him two weeks before Furusawa turned up. We interviewed him again at Brno, and he was a different guy. I mean, y you know what it's like when somebody's been under pressure for a year. It, it, literally, the, 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 the haggard look. You know, he was a absolutely under-pressure man. It was not. It obviously had not been a nice year. But Furusawa was in the background. So, of course, he's heading the race operation for that year, but he knows he's toast in terms of Yamaha, because Furusawa is building the new bike. And what Furusawa did, very quietly, just came and watched what was going on, watched the opposition, wasn't ever announced. I don't think there was any press awareness of his presence, and he was there for the whole of 2003. By middle of the year, he's building a motorcycle. So he knew that they had to change. And 
for Valencia, they turned up with two completely new motorcycles. These bikes had front engine mounts that instead of stopping at the cylinder head, went all the way down to the front of the cylinder block. And they had swing arms that were built, we call it now upside down. It is now the norm. But basically, all the reinforcing material was on the bottom half of the swing arm. And that is an engineer who is choosing to change the way the bike bends. The old bike for the 500 was stiff. The, the big four strokes needed to be much more flexible. They needed to slide under control. I mean, Burgess said it. He said, you, you need to have a motorcycle, the rider can back into a slide, and then much more important, back out of a slide again under control. And that's how you deal with the excess torque. You let it, sp- you let it slide. So who had pioneered this new chassis even though Valentino wasn't yet riding it? Furusawa and his engineers. So they had a footprint at just at the end of 03. Well, no, the bike turned up. To have the bike turned up, I mean, they, I mean, it takes three months to build a chassis. So that thing was signed off in July. You know, they knew what was coming. But they tried this bike in Valencia, and I almost think it was to prove to Rossi he'd made the right decision because those bikes were never seen again. Was it in the race weekend or in the test? Arbe and Checker had them. They got on them at the start of the Valencia race. They would not get off them. They were so much better than what they'd been riding. I only got three pictures. They never, ever came back. For the next year, we had a bike that looked the same on the outside, but the front engine mounts that on this special bike had gone down to the front of the cylinder was now right down in front of the crankshaft. So the 04 Yamaha did make a little sneaky appearance. In 03. A Mark 104. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it had but, the old yeah. engine and everything else. And you got all this design is modular. So the engine in Valentino's test bike, yes, it had the crankshaft that had the irregular fire. Yes, it had four valves. But it still fitted in the old chassis because Melandri and people like that didn't get the new chassis and the new swing arms until the first race was over. You know, so they were building stuff as they went along and trying to uh, update their entire racing fleet as fast as they could with the new bikes. Again, just as they are now. So then the, the, the full chassis, as it were, came forward at the beginning of 04. Valentino was on it. He had chosen the right engine. I seem to remember Furosawa saying something along the lines of, I knew which engine he had to choose, but I let him choose it. You know, something yes. along those lines. But you, and, and you've got to take on board just how important this was. All of Yamaha's top street sporting bikes were five-valve with regular crankshafts. It was what's called in the marketing their, their unique selling point, their USP. You know, Yamaha do five-valve. And here they were with their GP effort, ripping that up and throwing it over their shoulders. And it took them two or three years before the R1 on the street went the same way. But this is a big change of direction. Okay, what did they then start doing to the to the chassis itself just before that first uh, South African Grand Prix with Valentino on a Yamaha? Was it was it an extreme setup? Was it a chopper? Was it a drag racer? What was it? It was longer and higher. Burgess told me that he Rossi could never understand why it was so easy to outbreak the Yamahas on the Honda. They had the same brakes, the same discs, most of the time the same tires and the same wheels. But he could always stop quicker than the Yamaha. And what they did was they raised the bike. 
so that when you hit the brakes, it actually pitched across to the front tyre more aggressively, a bit like a big trail bike. But what that does is it flattens the tyre, so you get more grip. If your bike's too low, it doesn't flick across onto the front tyre hard enough. Your front tyre sits there with a tiny contact patch. But if you can load it up more by the bike being higher, you can get it to get a bigger contact patch. You can dial in more brake. Because you dial in more brake, it pitches over harder. It's a benevolent, benevolent circle. And you end up loading up the tyre more. So they raise the bike. I mean, again, you don't just raise a bike without messing up everything else. There was nothing wrong with the Erlins forks, except now they weren't long enough. So Erlins built them special forks where the fork leg was longer and the fork top had a big hole in the middle, essentially, and the adjuster was sunk an inch or so down, 25 millimeters down. So they essentially extended the fork around the torque cap so that all of the internal operations of the fork were the same, but now they could raise the bike by another 25 mil if they wanted to. And I think it went up 20, 25 mil. And then they lengthened it. And by lengthening it, they took away some of the aggression of that pitch, but they also made it more docile so that he could actually slide it more easily. And the, the story of, the, of not just the testing, but also of the first few races, is of new swing arms turning up, each one longer than the previous one, and them trying to find the perfect place and the perfect weight balance. And every time you send the rear axle out, you have to send the front axle out to keep the balance between the front and the rear wheel the same. But this was all playing with this chassis, desperately trying to get this thing to work. So we went to Velcom, a uh, strange place. We first went there in, in 1999 when a Yamaha won. We went back you know, in 2000. A Yamaha won. Admittedly two strokes, but there you go. Valentino Rossi won in 2001. He lost in 2002 with a last lap mistake. Tori Ukawa came through to win the race, but by now we were in the MotoGP four-stroke era. Ukawa and Valentino were on Honda V5s. In 2003, Sete Gibanao won the race, but only after a terrible crash that had befallen Daijiro Kato, his teammate at the previous race, and Kato had died the week of the South African Grand Prix. Gibanao won the race. He was the sole man riding for movie star Honda. There was not a dry eye in the house. So we came to 04, and Valentino Rossi was on a Gulwaz Yamaha, new sponsorship, new colours, new team. It was an absolute sea change, bigger than the Schumacher-Ferrari uh, uh, change. Valentino Rossi was fastest in every single session at Velcom. Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon qualifying when he was quicker ahead of Gibbonau by three hundredths of a second and quicker than Biaggi by over a quarter of a second. That was your front row. It's certainly not as wide as that nowadays. He wasn't quickest in the warm-up, so he started from pole position. He managed to get the whole shot in the Grand Prix down to that first left-hander, and then the race is on. And I still think, back to the commentary, Neil, I still think... He's not going to do it. He, so, you know, he, he just can't do it. Not even Valentino, because the Yamaha non-winning odds were just so stacked against him. 
But of course, we were beginning to realise that we were still in the very early pages of him writing his own script. He was. I mean, you know, Rossi makes one hell of a difference. He, was a, he is now an awesome rider. Then he was absolutely in his pomp. He was the best rider by a country mile. Yamaha built a motorcycle, and he and Jeremy had fettled that motorcycle till it was operating as well as they could make it at the time. There's a bunch more technical stuff still to come during the year, but the bike that rolled out at Wellcom had a different crankshaft concept, different cylinder head concept. It had fuel injection, so it wasn't on the carburetors anymore, but it was a rather curious design from the 2003 series uh, season. But it was longer, higher, flexed, and it had Rossi on it. Now, his major opposition at that point was still Biaggi. He, he was up there. He was flying. Yes, he'd had a pretty unfortunate time in MotoGP by being with Yamaha. There'd been a massive falling out at the end of the first season. He'd been on the Honda. But now he was Honda's top guy. What about Gibbonat? He had an HRC contract, though. He did, but he was the, he was the guy on his way up. Biaggi was the bloke at the top. In terms of Honda, I mean, he, he, he was going to be at the top really for the rest of that year. But after that, they kind of worked out in the end, he was going to ride it like a 250. And this wasn't a 250 world. And here's Jibber now, who's understood you've got to slide it, you've got to let it move. And that wasn't really Biaggi's style. And Valentino was then chucking the Yamaha around that we'd never seen before, because if you chucked it around like that, you were off. Yes. But he'd, he'd, he and Burgess had understood how to get the best out of the bike. As I said, it was longer. I mean, the chassis designers at Yamaha had understood that they had to get some flex to get grip into corners. I mean, the, 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 the 2002 and 2003 bike was famous for losing the front end. I mean, even, they even started calling Checker Chucker because he just chucked it away. But that wasn't his fault. It was actually the bike wasn't flexing enough and it wasn't gripping in the corners. Um, I mean, at Velcom, as you said, with the two-strokes, Yamaha did well. So it is a Yamaha track. It has their style. And, and the Yamaha style has always been to accelerate quickly out of all the short straight onto all the short straights. And if that costs you on the one long straight, so be it. I mean, people keep stressing, oh, the Yamaha's slow. It's only, it's only slow in the top speed straps, traps on one straight. And yes, it's the big straight. But as Burgess has observed on several occasions, there are an awful lot more short straights than there are big straights. And that's where the Yamaha wins. And that's what Welcome appreciate. And there he was with a couple of laps to go. Biaggi tried to get through, didn't quite do it. You had two big Italians absolutely at each other's throats. That, uh, you know, they hated each other going back to 97. Here we are in 2004. Valentino was not going to let him win. Of all people, of all people, Max Biaggi beat him. This was his chance to win back-to-back -back Grand Prix on two different types of motorcycle. Honda from the Valencia win in the November before, and here he was on a Yamaha. No one had ever done it before, and this was his chance to utterly cast in stone forevermore some history. They were miles ahead of the rest. Gibbonau uh, was sort of lost touch a bit in third, but then you go back to the sort of fourth, fifth position. Fifth position, Nicky Hayden, bless him, 25 seconds back 
That does not happen nowadays. Um, but it was a different era. Biaggi set the lap record on the last lap, proving how quick he was and how desperate he was to try and take that victory away from Valentino. But he'd done it. And I still remember the sort of disbelief in the mechanic's joy. Crikey, have we done it? Have we done it? But they had. They had. They'd done it. And we're, here we are, 16 years later, and we're still talking about it. Yeah, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it is, you know, how often are you going to change factories? Most riders, when they get to the top, don't. Rossi had changed, and the one thing nobody had ever done was win the very next race. And he did. Also, another little piece of history that day that we forget, nothing to do with Valentino, Danny Pedrosa. He was on the 250 for the first time that day in South Africa, and he won on his debut as well. But, of course, we then got to know a couple of years later, once he got into MotoGP, how, how good he was. Didn't ultimately win the big championship, but he had won in 125, and, of course, he was going to go on to do the double in, uh, in 250. So, um, yeah, proof that Valentino was was uh, w- was on top of his game, on top of the world, on top of the sporting world, and here we are 16 years later still talking about it, was that the next Yamaha was ninth, 36 seconds behind. But did he have a similar bike, Neil? Norik Abe? No. I mean, uh, Abe had good equipment, but Valentino's teammate was Checker. He would be the next one. I mean, the, the, the factories are nothing if not uh, firm in their sense of priorities. So it would be Rossi first, Checker second, Melandri third, Arbe third, uh, Arbe fourth. That trickle down happened over the next three or four races. I mean, there is one other technical thing that we ought to talk about because Rossi wasn't racing against Biaggi with Biaggi on the RC211V that Rossi had had the year before. What they'd done was bring in a new swing arm design. This new swing arm had uh, the shock absorber turned upside down and the linkage was on top of the swing arm rather than underneath the swing arm. Um, The only bike I've seen like that since was an experimental Suter Moto 2 bike and the current BMW Superbike. And while I don't think there's anything wrong with that design, the way Honda had executed it, they were after better grip in corners. And they came up with all these wonderful diagrams. Um, I put them in my book, actually, uh, showing the load paths and everything else and how it was going to be better. But their test rider in the early stages of the development of that bike was somebody called Valentino Rossi. Now, he's never been asked. I haven't, I haven't asked him. But the rumor, and I absolutely stress it's the rumor, is that Rossi knew it wasn't better. But maybe he hadn't told Honda that. <laughs> what this, what this, what this swing arm did, it caused Honda chatter. This is a vibration you get when the the slipping and the gripping of the tires as as they as they're sliding sideways corresponds with the with the frequency of the chassis, and you get this massive juddering vibration suddenly through the bike. And it only happens under certain load condition. Rossi is one of very few riders who understands how to deal with that, which is you change the load. And most people do that by slowing down. Rossi does it by speeding up. And it had been said back in 2003 that that Okawa could complain about chatter on one side of the garage and Rossi on the other wasn't making a comment about it at all because he was putting the bike under even more pressure and going through the other side of this vibration zone. Going through the sound barrier. 
Yeah. So it may well be that he did test this swing arm. He didn't think that the chatter was an issue and didn't mention it. Or it may well be that he did test this bike, think the chatter's worse, and that suits me perfectly. <laughs> it's all the game, isn't it? What I do know is that at the end of 2004, Honda got rid of that design, and it's never been seen since. They went very consciously right back to the 2003 design looked identical to the 2003. They just wrote that year off in terms of chassis. Mm. They didn't do badly, though, because at the next race, this is Honda I'm talking about, it was at Hareth, round two, 2004, Sete Gibanao won the race. It was a wet race, so there is that factor involved. Also, Gibanao was a god. He was a god in the rain. I have to take my hat off to him. He won it from Biaggi. Third place, Barros, on a Honda was 52 seconds behind. <laughs> Jibanao lapped Shinya Nakano in ninth place. You know, this is the stuff nobody talks about anymore. Jibanao was absolutely on fire. We went to the next race, which was Le Mans. Sete Jibanao won the race. He came out of round three leading the MotoGP World Championship, two victories and a third place to Valentino's one victory and two fourth positions. Why did Valentino not do so well in Hareth? Okay, it was wet, can't remember everything. Valentino stalled on the dummy grid at Le Mans, which would have put him a little bit on the back foot, but there and then, Gibbonau was leading the championship. He turned the tables very quickly. But at Le Mans, Valentino had all sorts of starting problems. I watched them fail to start the bike in pit lane at least three times. They actually ran down one of the charger on the on their little rolling road machine. The reason was they got rid... Well, I say the reason. The only specification change I am aware of was that that was the first race with Rossi on the Magneti Morelli injection system. So... Yamaha's 2003 system used guillotine slides. So just like a carburetor, they come down from above and shut it off. And that's a bit too abrupt on the initial throttle opening for a Grand Prix bike. Butterflies work far better, or they certainly did at that time. I suspect they're all on guillotines now, but they've now got computers operating them. Back then, butterflies is what you needed. And I think that this was the first race with the Magneti Morelli system and they hadn't quite got the starting set up as perfect as they wanted it. Oh, what could have been at Le Mans when Gibbonau was victorious because Checker was second. Another little thing that you forget in the midst of time. So a Yamaha was there in second place uh, with the Fortuna colours uh, with Carlos. So what could have been? But then... You know, Valentino got into his stride because then we went to Mugello and, yeah, then we got going. Well, Mugello, it mattered. I mean, really, really, really mattered. This was Valentino at home. But they've also had, they've also had that experience with the starting issues with the fuel injection. They've now got a better fuel injection system on the bike. At the Hereth test, they tested a new swing arm. They've got another new swing arm. So his setup is improving massively each time, you know. He then started to get a motorcycle he could really use. From upstairs in the press office, all the chatter going into Mugello was he just can't win this race because he's going to get murdered on the straights by the Honda, which had the top speed. It was still sledgehammering its way through the air of 
over a kilometre at the Mugello Strait. But as you said a moment ago, Burgess was saying, yeah, but there's lots of other smaller straits. And it was that, that, that attacking little terrier that nobody could see the data from of all the other little straits at Mugello. No, and, and, and that continues to this day. I mean, I, one of the greatest individual race results I've seen for years was about four years ago, uh, Lorenzo's last outing there on a Yamaha where he won the race by 10 seconds at Mugello, but he was something like 17th fastest in the top speed traps. You know, But what he had to be is what Rossi had to be back then. You've got to be in front coming out of the first corner because the Yamaha, yes, it's slower, and it, and it goes through corners and accelerates differently to the Hondas, but it can only do that if it hasn't got a Honda in the way messing it up. So what was Furusawa like at this point? You know, he was... He just had six Grand Prix in, with Valentino Rossi in his garage, and he'd won four of them. What was Furosawa's take on this? What were Yamaha like? Can you remember? Well, he, he, um, he was as uptight as you would expect him to be. He's in, he, he, he's, he's, he's sat, he spent a year getting everything in line. He's thrown the dice. They've got the rider. They've spent the money on the bike. They're running around like headless chickens trying to learn bring new parts, make sure everything's right for, the, for their main rider, and also develop the bike. And in the background, they're also working on the 2005 edition. Because don't forget, the project was to win the 2005 championship, not the 2004 one. And it was, what can we learn in 2004 to make sure we win in 2005? Whereas the race team, Burgess, Rossi, Al, no, we want to win everything now. So there's... there's, there's an awful lot of work going on. They're building two motorcycles. They're fixing and developing the one they've got now. But there's another one on the drawing board back in back in Japan. People working through, what do we do to take this another stage? What are we learning? I mean, this engine, Suji-san had got the power out of it, but he'd increased the revs. This engine had a cam chain. I mean, nothing has a cam chain in Grand Prix now. They're all gear-driven. But this had a cam chain. They were changing the cam chain every single night. Because it was stretching. Basically, it wasn't reliable enough. You know, the, the thing was starting to fall apart. Okay, how do we make no sure it doesn't fail? No restriction on engines, just no, to no. remind people. And they used 21 different engines in that year. Oh, well done. This is the stuff. You know this is I mean? prototype racing. They had, they, had, they had a truck in the paddock with the engine truck with four engine rebuild stations in it. They were taking engines apart and doing whatever had to be done and then shipping them back out again. It was just engines coming in and out of the garage like there was no tomorrow. Just as an aside from that, uh, colleagues I've worked with who used to work at HRC, they said, oh, yeah, there'd be Nicky Hayden engines just sitting around in the, in, in, the, in the workshop, either back in Belgium or back in Japan, and they'd just be sitting there with, you know, oh, Nicky Hayden, RC211V, you know, Laguna Seca Grand Prix that he was victorious in, and it would be sat there, and he'd go back six months later and still be there. And you'd go, what? He said, oh, yeah, they threw engines at it like you have no idea. 21 engines, and now they're limited to seven. seven now, but uh, uh, they, at one point they went down to five. I mean, talk about changing the way the game is played. I mean, they did it to restrict costs, but can you imagine how much it costs to make a competitive engine when you've only got five of them for an 18 or 19 race season? How much would it cost, to complete your sentence, to make one of those engines not blow up? Correct. I mean, You've how got many, to blow how many, up 21 in the first place. Well, how many did you blow up on the dyno working out what was going to break first and then fix it? 
and then go back to the dyno and see what it breaks their second. Mm. Next week is link, yes. Round and round we go. I'm not at all sure it's cheaper. Correct. <laughs> and we're never going to know. We're, gonna, we're never going to know. Have you ever seen inside one of those Yamaha engines, similar to what Honda did at the end of 06? Have they ever opened the, uh, the heart of it? They've never opened the heart of it. They, they've, they've told us what's in there. As the years have gone on, you know, the design change. I mean, the big change was at the end of the 2004 season. 2004 was run using engines that were modified from the initial design. Cam chain, uh, the engine mounts changed, the cylinder head changed, the crankshaft changed. But in 2005, they got a whole new engine. Vertically stacked gearbox, kept the four valves, kept the crankshaft, but had gear-driven cams in, in, in a way that was, you know, it, it made it reliable. You didn't, you didn't have a cam chain to change. And it was a very elegant design in 2005. And, and if you looked at that engine then, and you looked at the engine they have now, very, very close very very close i mean it's got pneumatic valves now it's got different capacity it's been 800 for a while but the packaging and the overall design has, has basically stuck with suji's design for 2005 ever since the the, the you you touched on 800 there just for a second we went 800 cc in 07 for five years was it just a smaller version of the yamaha engine or what did people do back at weimar well when we went to 800 they put a restriction uh well, they, 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 it was done to slow the bikes down, but actually the bikes sped up because everybody actually worked out that all you had to do was rev them harder. You had less torque, uh, but in terms of the amount of air the engines were breathing, it was the same because instead of 16,000 RPM with a 990, they, they ended up, I think the Ducati at one point was doing 22,000 RPM. Holy smoke. I didn't know that. It didn't do it in racing, but uh, I was on the pit lane at Valencia in 2006 at the test at the end of the season. And Yamaha got a whole bunch of uh, recording equipment on pit lane. And I'm up there and Furris hours there with his top engineers. And I sort of asked him, you know, what are you actually doing? And he says, we're recording the uh, Ducati. He says, uh, it's doing 22,000 RPM. <laughs> <laughs> and of course... It never did 22,000 RPM again because no. that was a test. And what they needed to know was what it could do. But what they didn't want to, what they weren't able to do when they had the fuel restriction the year after was actually use those revs. But what, but because they developed an engine that could do those revs, they could go as far as they liked. All their, their main focus after that was to make it rideable on very little fuel. From 24 to 22 litres. Yeah, but that test and the previous one at Motegi, they'd actually run it to full revs. I mean, I think uh, they, when Ducati tested their 800 at Motegi after the race there, so 2006. Uh, we went to that test. We did, and Jibinau was fastest on the prototype 800, and all the That's Japanese right. just sat there and went, what has he just done? You yeah. know, But, we, but they were we, testing it without the fuel restrictions that would ultimately be designed right. to slow it we, down. Yeah, because the fuel restrictions was, was the big worry, and we went to that test. It was a beautiful sunny morning. For, for obvious reasons, we were obviously hanging around because we had a, an, an evening flight to Australia or something or other, but yes, I've got photos in my hard drive. I'll dig them out. Yes. Yeah. Mm, good days. Those were good the days. days. So what, what just, just before we get onto the final page, what is in today's Yamaha MotoGP bike that was on, or a fundamental kernel of an idea that was on Valentino Rossi's 2004 Yamaha that won it uh, 
one at South. The two thousand and four, it's the four valves, uh, the downdraft, the inline four, the reverse rotating crank, and the irregular fire crank, the, the crossplane crank. What you've got in two thousand and five was them saying, "Okay, we've worked out all these bits work. Let's now put them in a package that's much better." So it got a gear drive up the back of the cylinder block. Uh, it got a vertically stacked gearbox, so the engine was much shorter. Um, and that basic concept with different capacities and the addition of pneumatic valves is what they're running now. You know, it's like, you know, Cosworth got their V8 together in Formula One um, in the, I think it was the mid-70s. Um, and it changed. It was a new engine every year, but it was the same basic concept for something like 15 years. Yeah, you mean the DFV that that won in 67 all the way through to 83, 155 Grand Prix victories in Formula 1. Yeah, and, and Yamaha's engine is very similar in, in thinking. You know, we got the concept right. I will say I think the bike that's on the that's going to be on the grid this year is slightly different because I'm absolutely convinced it has external flywheels um, added for um, adjustment purposes so they can change the inertia of the crank. Without opening the engine without opening the engine, which is where the rules are written. But I think mm. the rest of the engine will be just as it was. It wasn't broken. Yes, more power would be nice. But like I keep saying, that's not Yamaha's aim. They're not trying to win the top speed race. They're trying to go around the track the fastest. And they choose to do that by winning all the short straights, not the one big one. We got to 2006, Camel Yamaha, Valentino Rossi, and there was a... a, a when he'd lost the championship to Nicky, he said something along the lines of, I need Furusawa more at the racetrack. Basically, Furusawa, as I said, Mr. Fix-It. He came, he saw, he conquered. And by 2006, he was looking after the road bikes again. He'd turned up, he turned around the project. Um, and Yamaha, to their credit, sent him back. You know, um, by, when we went to the first... It, it, Rossi knew that the 800 project wasn't where he wanted it to be. And if we go to the 2007 800 Yamaha, it really wasn't there. Again, Yamaha had decided that the thing that mattered was the fuel consumption, and they built a bike that wouldn't go any faster than the fuel would let them, whereas Ducati had done it the other way around. So, yeah, he needed this top engineer back, and he got him. That's another story. That's another story. That is another story. But eventually, Furusara-san has, 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 has retired, and they've by the sound of things, are doing it all over again. Are we sort of having a end of 03, beginning of 04, end of 19, beginning of 20? Is that your hunch? Well, what we've got now, what's going out now, is the modern-day version of the 2005 bike. They've just done a year with lots of development stuff, new engineers, everything else. The difference is this time they, they didn't win. But if you look at Quattararo, how you know they're clearly getting there. But this year is the year that they, that they have their new design. It'll be interesting to see, and uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that we hope uh, to go racing sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, Neil, uh, technical guru about MotoGP, uh, MotoGPTechnology.com. Yes, yep, yep. We've got a book with all of this in uh, at MotoGPTechnology.com. Uh, if, if you want a copy, just uh, go on there, sign up, and they'll get one sent out. You'll be dashing down to the post office, or at least leaving the book outside for somebody to collect it. That's maybe the uh, the more socially <laughs> adept thing at the moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. Neil, thank you so much. Uh, you've taken me back to a wonderful time of MotoGP, the battle, really the end of the battles between Valentina Rossi and Max Biaggi. 
I, of course, look at things in a different way to you because, I, as I call it, I was upstairs in the commentary box and you were ferreting around in pit lane. It was the height of the battle of Valentina Rossi against Sete Gibbonau. Of course, in 04, there was that big hoo-ha at Qatar that uh, saw Valentino put at the back of the grid together with Max Biaggi. Gibbonau won the race and there was all sorts of words afterwards, which we touched in an earlier podcast with Simon with uh, the Race Mudder GP podcast, but they were they were absolutely fantastic days. How long will Valentino Rossi be racing for? We don't know. Arguably, he doesn't know at the moment until we go back racing again. So we shall find out very soon in 2020 with a bit of luck. Neil, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Great. And let's do another one soon. We will speak to you soon and look forward to it. But in the meantime, keep in touch with the-race.com. And keep up to speed with all of the MotoGP news, Formula One, eSports, and what's going on in the world of motorsports. Also keep in touch with at WeAreTheRace on Twitter and Instagram and through our Facebook page. In the meantime, from me, Toby Moody, thank you very much. I'll speak to you soon.